0: It's good to be back with you this Lord's Day. I apologize for my voice ahead of time. I've been visited by the sick bug that's been going around. And I wasn't able to sing with you this morning because I've been trying to protect my voice because I need to also go to Rock Hill uh, this afternoon and supply for Mark up there. Looking forward to that. And Bobby's going with me and is going to be sharing about the Ukraine-Russian translation mission. And so pray for that, just pray for our safety and pray for God to use that. Uh, I wanna mention one other thing too, just a couple of things before I look at the word of God with you, and you can open to Romans 12 if you'd like to go ahead and get settled there. The first thing is this, if you ever have an uh, opportunity to do this, um, while we're singing, just stop singing and listen to the people singing here. Now don't all do it at the same time. (laughs) It won't be good. But it is a blessing just to hear the redeemed say so, and to hear them sing with genuine joy and love for Christ. Uh, I remember, I think it was 2017, I was at the Shepherd's Conference in California, and uh, Luke was able to go with me that year, and uh, I remember being in there among those men. I think that auditorium auditorium seats about 3,500. And uh, just to hear those men sing, uh, most of them pastors, and so they're singing with all of their voice and all of their heart. And I was just uh, amazed uh, to be there. And I told Luke, I said, this is something I have waited for for so long to be a part of, and it means so much to me. But now to be able to come home and to be here where you guys are and to hear you sing the same passion, the same love for Christ coming out of your voices is so beautiful, so beautiful few things I want to mention, just so uh, you don't forget these, I want to encourage you to pray for uh, Ron Perryman and Matthew Lawson, who are going to be leaving tomorrow uh, morning to go over to Kenya, and they're going to be traveling over there for the purpose of uh, visiting a ministry that Ron and Lisa have been involved in through digital media, and they're going to be putting their eyes on this ministry and actually seeing what it's all about, and so we're praying that God may open a door there for future ministry. So pray for their safety, pray for their health, pray for open doors of ministry. Uh, Mitch, whenever he gets back, he's going to be going later on in the year. I think, Ron, you're going with him again then uh, to look at some ministry over there in Kenya. So we've had our our hands in Kenya for a number of years and so now we're trying to get back some inroads in that area of mission and ministry. And speaking of missions, uh, Alton has been really our lead elder on missions for years literally ever since I've been here I know him before that he's led the mission to Kenya and led the mission to India and uh, has been over to India believe it or not for 27 years that's longer than some of you have been alive and he's been going over there so but Alton has bless his heart had a lot of pressure on him recently with his family and uh, his his dad passing away and handling uh, the estate there and plus his mother-in-law so we want to make sure that we pray for him He is stepping away from his elder responsibilities, taking a sabbatical, a needed sabbatical of rest, and also the opportunity to take care of those needs in his family. So make sure you pray for him and pray for that. So just so you know, so everything's clear for our church, uh, the elders that we have right now are myself, Sandy, and Chris. Chris Olds is home sick, not able to be with us. We do have two other training men who are training to be elders, Andy Schumper and also Matt Watson. So just keep those in your prayers. If you have any uh, issues, any pastoral concerns, any needs, you can come to any of these men and we can make sure we can do what we can to help you with that. And uh, As far as Bible Ed is concerned, Alton was overseeing that. Now Chris Olds is going to take that responsibility for now. So if there's any concerns about our needs for Bible Ed, make sure you contact Chris Olds. Uh, One other thing, um, we have uh, attempted to make sure that we have a monthly ministry that we're emphasizing. Uh, Last month we talked about Providence Home and i want to just say right at the beginning of that that y'all have already reached out with that we're thankful to god for your willing support and desire to reach out to providence home Uh, that's been a great blessing but also this month our emphasis is on justin peters ministries now justin peters is not able to be with us today uh, obviously but he has been here before and we love his ministry he is a brother who really does a great work at defending the faith against false doctrine and heresies and false teachers and has been really on the front uh, the front lines of that for years. And he's a dear brother of mine, and I look forward always to talking to him, and periodically I'll text him. I don't try to bother him as much and ask him a question or see how he's doing. So just make sure this month especially, I know we're coming toward the end of it, but make sure you pray for Justin, pray for his health, pray for his wife's health, and pray for God to continue to use him. Uh, he just, just, just in case you're not aware of that, he just put out a, a video uh, I think the day before yesterday or whatever on uh, Stephen Furtick. And if you don't know who Stephen Furtick is, bless you. But if you do, and you know people who are listening to Stephen Furtick, he is a heretic, okay? He, he is definitely not the kind of man that you want to follow or learn from at all. And Justin does a wonderful job exposing these false teachers that sadly are so prominent today because they have the airwaves. And he can get into homes and families, and that's really, really tragic, isn't it? So make sure you do pray for him, and um, make sure you also pick up a bulletin, okay? They're printed, and they have those announcements in them and other announcements, so you can follow along with that. So let's go ahead and turn our attention now to the Word of God, and we're going to be looking together today at Romans chapter 3, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. And uh, as I've titled the message, as you'll see in the verse, don't think so highly of yourself. Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read verse 3 through 5 for our study this morning. The word of God says, for I say through the grace given to me, to every one of you who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Humility is one of those most needed yet difficult and easily evasive virtues of the Christian life. And the opposite is also true. Pride is the easiest and most accessible and destructive of all attitudes of the Christian life. Nothing can be so beautiful than to have a church full of people who express true humility. But nothing can be so ugly as a church filled with people who are prideful. Our sinful nature, as you know, I'm sure, and I am also aware of this, seeks our own self-centeredness it's very easy to find ourselves circulating everything around ourselves and making sure everything is about us our sinful nature resists humility and it resists selflessness just a quick look at our culture will tell you just how self-centered we are and how prideful we really are now just for a moment i want you to entertain with me these thoughts and these are useless facts to be stored in your short-term memory all right did you know that 92 million selfies are snapped every day did you know that (laughs) and did you know seven of those are taken every minute also there are some i found out that are dying to take a selfie literally from 2008 to 2021 an estimated 379 people have died taking selfies you probably have witnessed some of those someone standing on the precipice of a waterfall or a large rock extending out and they want their selfie to put on facebook or some social media and they end up falling as a result of it now i don't encourage that and would encourage you and discourage you to do such a thing but nevertheless it is clearly emblematic of the problem we have in our culture we have been feeding ourselves for years and sadly we often think too highly of ourselves don't we we think a lot about ourselves you may already know this and i'm sure that you do but evil entered this unstained creation by the doorway of pride that's how everything eventually was corrupted paul told timothy that men who should serve in leadership as pastors and elders should not be novices and the reason why he says that is this in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6 he says lest they being puffed up with pride would fall into the same condemnation as the devil. In other words Paul is alluding to the reality that the initial fall occurred in the heart of Lucifer before he fell out of heaven. He was a creature that had been created by God according to the word of God. He had stupendous beauty, amazing power as a high ranking angel. And yet he became filled with himself, so much so that he thought he could be God, that he could supplant God himself. According to Isaiah 14.12, which many scholars believe is a reference not only to a leadership of a man at that time, but also a reference to Lucifer, the devil himself. In Isaiah 14.12, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who have weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. And I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the congregation of the further sides of the north. And I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And I will be like the most high. Yet God says you shall be brought down to the pit. To Sheol. To the lowest parts. If you read the scripture, and I'm sure you do, the Bible is very clear that God hates pride. He absolutely hates pride. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. God says, I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Proverbs eleven two says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. In Proverbs 16:5, the Lord detests all who have a proud heart. In Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Even our study in the book of James, if you are reminded of this, the Bible tells us that God will resist. That is, he literally works against the prideful. He says this: God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Peter quotes this same verse. This same reference in 1 Peter 5, 5, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Even Luke 14, 11, for everyone who, ex- who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the way up is the way down. If you and I decide to be self-exalting and Prideful and not humble in the sight of God, you will be humbled by God. Proverbs 18.12 says, before his downfall, a man's heart is proud. It also says in Proverbs 29.23, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Also, another point to remind ourselves of is that if you want to be properly in right relationship with God... And to worship him acceptably, the only pathway to that is through through true humility. In fact, in Isaiah 57, 15, one among many verses in the scripture, it says, as God says of himself, that he is the high and lofty one. He says, I live in a high and holy place, but also I live with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. There is no place for pride in the Christian life. There is no place for someone who does not have humility in the Christian life. First Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, and he may lift you up in due time. And as Isaiah 23, verse 9, The Lord Almighty planned it to bring low the pride of all glory and to humble all who are renowned on the earth. One of the means by which God brings people into his kingdom is by humbling them, bringing them down off their high and lofty perches. In fact, Paul the apostle was one of those who had experienced great revelation from God, had been given great instruction from God. There was an occasion he referred to the time when he was taken into the third heaven. He doesn't even recount really how that happened. He doesn't know if he was in in the body or out of the body or he was in the spirit or whatever, but he knows that he went to the third heaven, which would have been the abode of God, and he received revelations from God. In fact, he says in that text that he actually received things that cannot be uttered, cannot be shared, cannot be spoken of with men. It was so much and so overwhelming, yet he was given a place of prominence in the church as an apostle to the Gentiles, and there might be a tendency for him to be prideful for God giving him so much information, so much revelation, so much insight. And so God, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, sent a messenger from Satan to buffet him. The way to understand that buffet is to beat from pillar to post. That's the idea. And this was a demonically inspired conspiracy against the Apostle Paul to discredit his ministry, to discredit his motives, to discredit his preaching, to make it as if he was in it for what he could get out of it. And yet that same messenger of Satan was working havoc in the church at Corinth and Paul was burdened tremendously. It broke his heart over what was going on there. Yet the Bible is very clear that God sent the messenger of Satan to humble him. He was called a thorn in the flesh. Some have said that referred to some physical ailment, but really, most likely, it was this false uh, satanic conspiracy to discredit the Apostle Paul by those who were in and among the church. It was a sad reality, but Paul needed it according to the Word of God, and he even prayed three times. For God to remove it from him, and you know the answer to that, God said what? No, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, Paul, even though you are going through that horrible battle and being buffeted by this satanic messenger, it is better for you to be humble than to be filled with pride and self-exaltation. So God goes to very strong, and what we would even say extreme measures, to make sure that you and I remain in the right position as believers you could say in a right way that this kind of prideful attitude and arrogance that often permeates some of our people in the body of Christ is something that makes God sick it really does I told you before as we go through Romans chapter 12 and through the rest of the book we're going to get into some very practical application And I thought that whenever I read this this past week and studying it again, I thought, you know, how much more practical can you get for our culture than not to think so highly of yourself? I mean, that's what we are. That's what our culture is. It's all about thinking about self and how great we really are. And that has actually sadly come into the church, right? Well, there are a couple of things we're going to look at. First of all, and we're only going to cover one of the two points today. And the first is this, thinking rightly about your giftedness in the body of Christ. And secondly, Lord's willing next week, thinking rightly about your place in the body of Christ. And let's begin by looking at verse 3 and thinking rightly about your giftedness in the body of Christ. Now, the last three sermons that we discussed, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, were the beginning foundational applications of chapter 1 through 11, right? It was... Paul saying now that you have been saved by the mercies of God therefore give yourself over totally devoted with unreserved devotion to God as a person committed to spiritual service or spiritual worship they're both the same look at Romans 12 1 again I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice Wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual worship, it can be translated either way. Both are accurate. The point is, is that when you worship, you serve. When you serve, you worship. How do you give yourself totally to God as a sacrifice? Right? As a sacrifice, there is no. I'm leaving this part back for me to, to, to for me to enjoy. Me to do a sacrifice is 100% commitment. 100% commitment. In fact, I've said this before, the Christian community should be the one community that you could go to and offer a need and there should be hundreds of people that run to meet that need because we are willing to sacrifice all for the service of Christ. So this monumental and expected devotion to God in the service to him will only occur whenever you and I are not being conformed to this world. Listen, it don't, it don't occur if you're allowing the world to conform you to its image. And that's the problem we have. Everything in this culture, literally everything in this culture, is all about making sure you, number one, are satisfied. Everywhere you go, right? Whatever you do. You see it all the time. Something's not done my way. And people get all upset about it. And we're all about serving self and making sure we're all taken care of. And number one is the main thing. And so we have to fight against that. We have to work actively against that every day in our life because we're permeated with it and so as I've told you before whenever we think about the rest of the book of Romans you will see that the things that Paul is calling on us to do here have nothing to do with the philosophy and the way that the world thinks let me show you what I mean let's just take a quick jet tour through a couple of the verses here that we're going to be studying in the weeks and months ahead as I told you in verse 2 he tells us that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as a result of you having a transformed way of thinking, or a better way of saying that, a biblical mindset or a biblical worldview, that's why he can begin in Romans twelve three and say, "Not to think highly, so highly among yourself as you ought not to think." And then in uh, Romans twelve nine, listen to this: Here's a list of things he's going to tell us that we should be doing as a result of our transformation of our mind and our thinking love without hypocrisy abhor what is evil this is verse 9 cling to what is good be kindly affectionate to one another uh, with brotherly love honor giving preference to one another not lagging in diligence fervent in spirit serving the lord rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation continuing steadfastly in prayer distributing to the needs of the saints given the hospitality bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep be of the same mind toward one another do not set your mind on high things but associate with the humble do not be wise in your own opinion repay no one evil for evil have regard for good things in the sight of all men and if possible as much as depends upon you live peaceably with all men beloved do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord if your enemy is hungry feed him if he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, just that alone is going to be a challenge for all of us. That comes from a transformed mind that has a total devotion to Jesus Christ. It even gets more intense. Chapter 13, April 15th is coming. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Now, this wasn't a Christian friendly government he was talking about, right? For there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Look at verse 6, chapter 13, verse 6. For because of, because of this, you also, here it is, what does it say? Pay your taxes. Some of you are going to fight that, I'm sure, Right? He even says that they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear for whom fear, honor to whom honor. You're talking about practicality here. Pay your taxes? Romans 15, 1. Romans 15, 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. All of these commandments require complete devotion to Jesus Christ in humble reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit that enables you to kill the deeds of the flesh and to think biblically about what God says. And to understand this and to be able to practically apply all of this, you have to understand humility, folks. I have to understand humility fighting against the tide of our culture and the tides, frankly, within the churches, we have to understand what true biblical humility is. So we're going to talk about that just for a few moments. So let's just discuss what you and I need to understand about true biblical humility. First thing is this, to understand true humility, we have to understand our origination. Secondly, we have to understand our obligation And third, we have to understand our operation. You get that? So to understand humility, and this starts at the very foundation of it, you need to understand your origination. What I mean by that is your salvation. Any person who has truly experienced the saving grace of God understands what humility is at least for that split second. They get it. They understand what that means. Look at verse 3. This is Romans 12, 3. Paul says, for I say, through the grace given to me. Now, Paul is not talking about salvation here. He's talking about apostleship. He's talking about the ministry that God gave to him. And the reason why he's not talking about salvation here is simply because he spent the first 11 chapters talking about that. He spent 11 chapters Talking about the grace of God that saves us from hell itself and the deserved justice of God. So the foundation of our humility is the understanding of our salvation, which he's already spent 11 chapters going through. So we want to spend just a moment here, okay? I don't want us to miss this. Because without this, we don't understand true humility. And the point I want to make is this. Any person who is truly saved cannot ever enter into salvation with a prideful heart it doesn't mix it's like oil and water it doesn't go together no one gets saved through the gate of pride nobody no one ever carries their bags of self-righteousness and religious achievement into the gate that leads to eternal life that's why jesus said it is a narrow gate it's a narrow gate it's not something you're able to carry anything in through It's a gate that only the poor in spirit can enter. The ones who are truly humble in the sight of God, who have literally nothing to offer God. They come naked and destitute and bankrupt of all that they could have because they know and recognize that they are sinful in the sight of God and have nothing to offer for salvation, but are deeply dependent upon his grace and mercy to save them. Let's go to a text and show you this. Look at Luke chapter 18. Go back to Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. In Luke 18, 9 through 27, there are three stories or three incidents that our Lord tells us about that really exemplify what it means to enter into the kingdom of heaven or what it means to be saved. And you are familiar with all of these, so I'm not going to highlight all the points that could be made about these, but... I want to emphasize the point that Jesus is making about true humility. So Luke chapter 18, verse nine, it says, and he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Listen to what Jesus said in verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even as this tax collector for I I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted humility starts listen to this humility starts with a recognition of your own sinfulness if you don't get that at the very beginning you can't get salvation this is where it starts you and i recognize by god's grace and his power of his holy spirit our own sinfulness What I have witnessed, and even Sandy referred to, whenever you have the opportunity to hear the testimonies of people who have come to Christ, one of the key ingredients we listen for is that humility whenever they come to Christ. We could say it from a more Reformed perspective, when Christ comes to you and he convicts you of your sin, at that moment in your life, there is no, hey, I'm a pretty good person. Or as often is stated in the South, Whenever you talk to someone about their need for salvation, they'll say, well, I've never murdered anybody. Well, that's wonderful. I've never committed adultery. And so they go on this whole list of things that they did, that they didn't do. And that's supposedly supposed to give credit before God for them. No, when someone comes to salvation, there is none of that. There's the full recognition of their own personal sinfulness and that they are an offense to a holy and righteous God. That's where it starts. That's where Jesus starts here with true humility. The second one is given to us in the very next verse. He tells us of another example of true humility that brings salvation. Verse 15, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. And Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For such, or this kind, qualitatively speaking, is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. Now, in this text, in Luke, Luke being a doctor, obviously points out something unique here. At the very beginning in verse 15, he uses a word for infants there, or children. It's the Greek word brephos. This refers to a baby, a nursing child that could also just be newly born, or it also is referred to in the early parts of Luke where Mary is with child and Elizabeth is with child. That's the same word. So just as a little footnote here on the side, God sees the child inside the womb as the same as outside the womb, okay? There is no difference. The point is is that we find by Luke's attesting to this occasion that the initial child that is brought to him is an infant, a baby. Now, later on in the same text, he uses a different word, the word paideia, which is the word we get pediatrics from, which does refer to a small child, more like toddler size. I mean, they can kind of waddle around and walk around and bump into things and goo and ga and slobber and stuff like that. (laughs) But they're still not to the point where they're able to reason on their own, take care of themselves on their own. In other words, both of these words that are used here in this text refer to absolute total dependence on their parents. They can't do anything on their own. And by the way, they have no achievements either. They haven't won any awards. They haven't accomplished anything. They haven't been educated yet. They have no degrees. They have nothing. They can only give what babies give right the point is is that what jesus is driving home here if you don't come into the kingdom with total dependence and trust as this child does you'll never enter into the kingdom there is no such thing as coming into the kingdom without true humility as a child depends upon his parents to take care of him I mean, the child is not sitting at home, you know what, I'm thinking about what I can do this next week, and I'm going to accomplish this and do that, and I don't need mom and daddy for that. No, a baby needs mom and dad 100%. 100% or it doesn't survive. And the same is for the pidea, The little child, the little child can wander off and get lost and get killed, and all kinds of horrible things can happen without the parents taking care of it. It is in total dependence upon the parents to take care of it. But he's not talking about the parents. He's talking about how you and I should be like the child. And how is the child? The child knows it's totally dependent upon the parents for its own survival. And so is the case for you and I as a Christian. You and I must approach salvation and God with this absolute total dependence that God is the only one who can save me. I can't go anywhere else. I have nothing to offer. If he doesn't give it, I don't get it. All of that is there. It's an expression of true humility. So first of all, you have true humility expressed in your own understanding of your sinfulness. And you could say that true humility is expressed in your own dependence on God. You could use the word trust in there for sure. There's one last one and that's verse 18. He talks about the rich young ruler. Of course, we are familiar with this, this ruler comes to him and says in verse 18 good teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life and jesus gives him a list of commandments he tells him you know don't commit adultery don't murder don't steal don't bear false witness honor your father and your mother and he in verse 21 arrogantly and pridefully says all these things i have kept from my youth he is a liar folks but he believes he's okay he is filled with himself notice at the very beginning in verse 18 what shall i do to receive eternal life verse 21 all these things i have kept from my youth verse 22 jesus went on to say these things to him you still lack one thing sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me and this here, what the problem with the rich man is this he doesn't understand true humility in the sense of his own inability now there's a lot going on in this text obviously we could talk about the idolatry and the covetousness and the things that kept him from the kingdom but one of the problems that stands out above all the other ones is this what can i do what can i do Or I have kept all these things. You see, he doesn't really understand. No, he's not able to do that. He's not able to do that. He's not able to keep the law of God. He's not able to please God. And you see, someone who is truly expressing biblical humility understands his own sinfulness, understands his utter dependence upon God to save him, and also understands he doesn't have anything that he can offer that he can do at all. So whenever someone is truly converted in this sense of humility, they can say, as with Jonah, truly salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. So with all of that said, there is no such thing as a prideful convert. There's no such thing as a prideful convert to Christianity. There is no such thing as a self-centered salvation. That's why there's so much problems today in our culture of Christianity where so much is about self, so much about me, so much about what I need, what I can get, what I want. It feeds this problem. Whenever you you start presenting the gospel as a solution to your problems, you're missing the point of it. Because it's not that. The gospel is for the glory of God, and you are commanded to repent and commanded to to, uh, submit to the Lordship of Christ. It's not an offer. It's a command. And we're to humbly accept it because we can't do anything else to save ourselves. And by the way, I think all of us understand this. Think back. For some of you, it's further back than others. But whenever you think about your time when the Lord saved you and he visited you that time and he brought you under intense conviction for your sin, there's one thing that all of us can say with absolute unity here we experienced what it is to be truly humble in that sense. We experienced what I just said, that you had a true understanding of your own sinfulness, that you had a true and absolute dependence upon God alone to save you, and that you had nothing at at all to offer him to save you. And you were just like the man who's the tax collector. God, be merciful to me. A sinner. Any person who has come to Christ and has been truly converted understands that you know that you are unworthy of forgiveness you know that you deserve the justice of god you know at that very moment of salvation that god is producing in you true biblical humility the foundations of self-exaltation and self-righteousness are obliterated and every stone of pride is crushed by the holy spirit at that very moment you remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2 and 1 and following? He talks about our condition, how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, how we were following after the, the prince of this world, the devil himself, that we were fulfilling our desires of our flesh, and we were by nature, by our very nature, children deserving of wrath. But then verse 4 says, but God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead, even when we were rebelling, even when we were his enemies, he said, he made us alive together in Christ. And then we know that famous verse for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Grace, unmerited favor, undeserved favor. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. He's not talking about grace here, folks. He's talking about the faith and everything that encompasses salvation. Nothing you did or responded to was your work. Nothing. Your belief, your repentance, your confession, your fellowship, your contrition, your humility was all a work of God. For by grace, drinking and preaching. It's water. My wife got it for me. So I Believe me. Then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Even the good works we do are something God does in us. You know, there is, the point is, there's is literally no place for pride. It is the most disgusting, arrogant thing to see in a Christian's life. And I wonder sometimes whenever people are like this, if they're truly converted. I really wonder. You remember Philippians chapter 3 talks about Paul's own conversion. He talked about all that he had that he could be prideful about. He says, if anyone could have confidence in the flesh, I the more so, he says. He says, I have more than anybody. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I had all of that. I persecuted the church. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, he says, no one could pin anything on me externally he says he was as righteous as a man could get but he says what things look good for me he says this in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7 and following what things look good for me I counted loss for Christ in fact he went on to say that I've suffered all things and I count all of that righteousness all of that ability all of that prestige and all of that position as one big pile of manure that's what he says so that he could actually receive Christ and his righteousness. See, that's the way in. The way in is not, Lord, look what I have done or what I can do. The way in is, Lord, I can't do anything, and unless you do it, I'm not getting there at all. So, first of all, we find humility in our origination, our salvation. That leads to our humility of our obligation, and that's our sacrifice of self, which we've already spent enough time on, so I'll just remind you of that. Humility also in our obligation that we are willing to give ourselves wholly and devoted to him. The presenting of ourselves as a living sacrifice is a humble response to the mercies of God. It's a reflection of our true understanding of what we just talked about. Because if you're that kind of person who understands that biblical humility, the natural outflowing of that is, Lord, here am I, send me. I'm your servant, Lord. Whatever you want of me, I'm willing to do. Because God did not send us to hell, even though he was right to do so. And because God allowed us to stay alive, to be saved, and was unwilling to kill us on the spot. We respond to that mercy. We respond to that mercy. I don't know if you realize this, but it's an amazing thing to consider. The Bible says this in 2 Peter 3, it says that God is not long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, right? Often that verse is used to express just God's general love and desire of repentance, but that's actually not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is God has a desire to save his bride the elect of God, and so he's long-suffering toward us, not going to kill us now, right? He's not going to kill us now, even though he could, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any of his elect would perish, so he withholds his wrath, withholds his justice, withholds what is rightfully ours, so that in time, he can save us and impute to us the righteousness of God that saves us. There's another verse in Hebrews 1 I find most amazing. It talks about that there are actual angels that oversee those that will inherit eternal life. Have you ever thought about that? That there are actually angels watching out for people who are lost, who are going to be saved? That at one time, whenever you were out carousing and doing all of your dirty deeds and things that you were doing, God had angels overseeing you, keeping you from dying? My mom often says, my angels have overtime duty. Probably wore out. That's an astonishing thing to think about. An amazing reality that God... Could have easily killed us, rightly so, but he has a desire and a purpose and a plan. He has chosen to save you and he protects you. He literally protects you. I think of all the dumb things I did even as a young man growing up. I mean, stupid things. And I just wonder you know, the only thing I can explain the fact that I'm even where I am now is by God's grace alone. By God's grace alone. So we find our humility in our origination, salvation, humility in our obligation, which is sacrifice and selfless service to him. And then it leads us to our third point, humility in our operation. And that's our service to the saints. That's where we get to verse 3. That's where we get to verse 3. Hopefully all that I've just said lays the foundation for what he's about to say. Verse 3, again, look at it with me. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly as god has dealt to each one a measure of faith now what paul is about to get into is what we call body life or the body of the church the members of the church and the way god has expressed those members the way he has expressed has placed those members in the church and what i mean by that is the individual people that god has saved he's placed in the body of christ uniquely for a purpose of service to that body for the glory of god every member every part of that church every member of that church has a purpose that god has allowed and what god has purposed in mind that's his whole point don't think so highly of yourself you're not there because you're the best man I mean, you're the only one that's got it. You're there because God placed you there sovereignly. He put you there sovereignly. In fact, uh, just to begin with verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, and again, as I told you earlier, at this point, he's not talking about the salvation grace. He's talked about that, the first 11 chapters. What he's talking about now is the grace of God putting him in service to Christ or as we would refer to, his apostleship. Paul considered himself an apostle out of due season. In other words, he wasn't part of the original 12. He wasn't even the guy that was in chapter 1 of Acts. You know, they cast lots, and Matthias was actually appointed an apostle and a disciple of Christ. I mean, Paul was not appointed an apostle until we get to Acts chapter 9. He's late. He comes late, if you will, to the party. Romans 1 5 Paul reminds us of this great grace he says through him we have received grace and apostleship in other words Paul recognizes his apostleship is not something of his own choosing it's not something of his own ability even though he no doubt was clearly a scholar in the Old Testament he was a Pharisee he was well taught he was able to communicate and to give us the books of the Bible that have some of the most complex of all doctrine but that was not the reason why he ended up ended up where he is. He came by God's unmerited favor. Romans fifteen fifteen. Nevertheless, Paul says, Brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points, as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. In First Corinthians three ten, Paul again says, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says, I'm where I'm at, and I'm doing what I'm doing. and I am what I am because of the unmerited favor of God. In Galatians 2, 8, and 9, he says, For he who worked effectively in Peter for apostleship to the circumcised also has worked effectively in me to the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me... And Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. There was even the recognition by Peter, James, and John that Paul had been graced by God to serve as an apostle. Ephesians three seven, Paul says, "I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me." Ephesians four eleven, he reminds us that all the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastor teachers are a gift of Christ to the church. There's another one that I often go to. It reminds me of Paul's humility, understanding his placement in ministry. In first 1 Timothy 1:12, 1, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief and the grace of our lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus then he says this this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am protocost I am first in line I'm number 1 when it comes to the sinners number 1 but Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and then he says this however for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern of those that were going to believe for everlasting life. Paul was just amazed, number one, that he was saved, absolutely astounded. But then the next step was that he would go even further than that, that God would grace him with placing him in ministry as an apostle. I mean, Paul was a blasphemer, an insolent man, a murderer of believers. Paul was amazed that God would take such a man and save him, transform him transform him by grace, and then grace upon grace, place him in ministry for the purpose of seeing others come to Christ and to show the world an example of what God can do with a godless, self-righteous man. He calls himself the chief of sinners and yet to make him part of the ministry what an amazing thing you think you have nothing to offer that god can't use you for ministry if god can take a man like paul who worked night and day against the church and transform him and change him and save him and make him a minister to the gentiles and an apostle that gave us 13 of our new testament books folks you need to rethink your theology god can use any of us for his glory so in verse 3, going back to Romans 12, verse 3, he says, For I say, that word for, guard, takes us back to the earlier portion. In other words, based upon what he's already told us about being a sacrifice and having a transformed mind, now he gives a series of directives, implications of what Paul has said. And these are going to come fast, so stay with me now. The first thing he tells us is this. In our service to God and the body of Christ, we should view it soberly. We should view it soberly. Look at the verse again. He says, first of all, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, this word is actually the translation of one Greek word, "huperphroneo." And the word huper means above or over. And the word "phroneo" we've already talked about before, it means to think or to think over or to think above. And it basically means to be, to think to think highly of yourself, to consider yourself of great importance, right? To become haughty, uh, to be lifted up with pride, high-minded are synonyms of that word. Another lexicon says of huperephaneo, it means unwarranted pride in one's self or one's accomplishments, Now, I want to add something here, just so we don't misunderstand something, okay? We're not talking about you being prideful in the sense that you're thankful that God has given you a gift. Like, for instance, some of you have artistic abilities, and you can paint, and you can draw, and it's just an amazing thing. And you should not say, you know, I'm just useless, I'm worthless, I'm nothing, I mean, you know, this is just pathetic. No, 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 no. You are to be thankful that God gave you that and the exaltation is not in self it's in what God granted you to do the same comes with the church every one of us are gifted differently every one of us are talented differently every one of us have strengths and weaknesses and the point is not to say you know I'm a worm I'm useless I'm no good and in fact I can't ever be used because of that it's not that at all it is to say Lord you have blessed me with this ability this giftedness this talent so I'm going to use it for your glory and all glory goes to you nothing wrong with that at all in fact that's the way we should respond to those things in our life but here he's talking about the man who is who's a self-exalter he's a man who thinks more about himself than he should he exalts himself above his own accomplishments if you will he lacks true humility he lacks a true understanding of what god brought him out of and what god delivered him to as one author said, Paul sees humility not merely as desirable, but also necessary for, as a true Christian. Another author said, to himself, to man, every man is, in a sense, the most important person in the world. I mean, who do you brush? Whose teeth do you brush in the morning? Whose hair do you comb? Who do you dress? Who do you make sure gets something to eat in two hours? Huh? number one right we all have that we understand that but the difference is is whenever we become the center of the universe and it's all about what we do and what we can do so the bible says not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think in other words there's a sober thinking here in fact it's interesting in this one word this one verse verse three the word is used four times which is the word to think I mean, he just left verse 2 where he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, let's change the way you think. So then Paul begins verse 3 by saying literally this. Don't think higher about yourself than you ought to think, but think right thinking about yourself. Have a proper view of who you are. Take the spotlight off for a little while, okay? Turn the selfies down. The word soberly here translated in this verse to think soberly is sofraneo. And that word basically means, as it is translated here, sober-mindedness. Or another way of saying it is to be sane or in your right mind. We've all been around them, right? I mean, the guy or the woman who really just thinks they're the best thing since cornbread... I mean, they're it, and, and you, you're around it for a little while, and you're like, okay, had enough of that, right? You need to think sanely about yourself. You're not the beginning and the end of the universe, and you and I, listen to this, it's going to be shocking, are replaceable. <laughs> We're replaceable. I remember in 2007, February of 2007, my dad passed away. kind of unexpected he had some problems in the hospital we didn't expect him to die but he did he went on to be with the lord we're thankful for that but i remember a comment my mom said it was no, no within the week of his death she goes the amazing thing about that is the world just keeps going on as if it didn't even matter and it does doesn't it it just keeps going on and on and on You know, there's a lot of people speculating right now about what's going to happen at Grace Community Church when John MacArthur passes away. I think they're trying to usher him out faster than he wants to go. But the point is, all this talk about who's going to replace John MacArthur, I grant you, God already has that worked out. And even though John is a great, great help to the body of Christ, and we will benefit from his work of ministry over 55 years, more than we ever ever will be able to imagine, there's also someone that will come in and take that place. And the body of Christ will keep right on going, keep right on going, keep right on going. It wasn't too many years ago, no one knew about Paul Washer. No one even knew his name. And he's been a great impact on the body of Christ. Other men that we've listened to and learned from over the years that God has used and raised up. Listen, there's one thing you need to understand the church will never fail, it will never fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So it doesn't matter what happens, who gets, who gets killed, who gets gone, whatever happens, God's going to grow his church. He's going to continue to work in his church. He's going to raise up the needed leadership and give the body the giftedness that it needs to accomplish what God has intended it to accomplish. So let's not get so haughty and think that we're the best thing that's ever happened to the church. We're not. But we can be used mightily by God in the church with a great sense of humility. We need to have a, a sane way of thinking about us, ourselves. Let's think realistically about ourselves. Let's have a sober-mindedness, our temporary nature that we have here. We're here as a vapor. We appear for a little while and we're gone, right? Right? Let's keep that in perspective. Have sound judgment, moderation about your own existence and your own place in the body of Christ. Paul uses this same word in Titus 2.6. He says, likewise, exhort young men to be sober-minded. He uses that a number of times about young men because young men have a tendency to be a little bit forthcoming and a little bit arrogant. I was there. I remember that. I thought I was the best thing that happened to evangelicalism. And I was going to correct every single pastor and every single problem in the church. I found out right quick like what it is to be a bull in a china closet too. And how you can bring all kind of havoc and destruction in a church by thinking you're the best thing that's ever been. Years, decades bring a little bit of sobriety to that. You begin to find out you're not the only thing that matters. And you're not the one that's going to correct the ship. We need to have sobriety, soberness. Peter said the same words in verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious. That's the word sober. Same exact word, sophoroneo. Be sober-minded and watchful in your prayers. And he uses the same kind of principle here to apply it in the same way Paul does to the body of Christ. Listen to this. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, be fervent in love toward one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins, be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received the gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's saying exactly the same thing that Paul is saying in chapter 12. Don't think so highly of yourself. Be sober-minded and understand the way God's gifted you is for the body of Christ to be edified for the glory of God. You're one part of a very complex machine that God has placed here. But as we'll see also, you're not just some part. Everybody is an important part. An important part. Let me close with a couple of thoughts can you hang with me a few more minutes a couple of thoughts first of all this kind of humility we're talking about is not false humility bible warns against false humility and that's that high idea that you know first of all you get prideful in your humility (laughs) that's why it's so tricky right you think you finally got it whenever you think you've got it you just lost it right it's a tough one it is it's a virtue that's required of us and expected of us but it comes from the right understanding as i shared with you earlier but here we don't want to be guilty of false humility. That's going around saying, I'm a worm, I'm a worm, I'm useless, I'm no good, whatever, right? Paul's not driving that home. We need to understand our lowly estate in the kingdom of God, but we also need to understand that God has designed it in such a way to use you for the impact of the kingdom. Secondly, this kind of humility is not to be the depreciation of one's position or giftedness in the body. All right, just because you're not out front and outspoken, maybe because you're more quiet, but you have a gift of ministry or hospitality or service or gifting, that does not mean you're less than any other part of the body. The body, all parts of the body are important. All parts of the body are important. Every gift is something we need to recognize this. Every gift, every talent that God gave to the church has been given by God. So I think if God gave it, I think I'm going to accept it as important, right? We all understand this. We'll look into this more next time. There are diversities of gifts in the body, right? And even Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 14, he says, For in fact the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not part of the body. I mean, just because you're not the pastor, teacher, an elder, or deacon, or serving in some capacity of leadership in the church or just because you may not have the kind of gift that someone else has does that mean you're not important no every single part of the body of Christ is needed it's needed he goes on to say if the body if the whole body were an eye where would be the hearing if all of us were teachers and we stood up and all of us taught that wouldn't be what the body needed the body needs more than that we need the person who has the ability to share in their ministry to one another, to serve one another, to give to one another, to be hospitable to one another, to love one another, all of those things that are just uniquely gifts of some people that are much better at it than I would ever be in many ways. And the last thing is this. True biblical humility is not a lack of dependence on God's grace and strength to carry out one's service. It's not saying, Lord, I I don't need you. It's actually the opposite. I need you for everything, every literal thing in my life. That's why Paul says in verse 3 again, for I say through the grace given to me, last part of the verse, God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. We, We only serve and we only exist because of God's grace. We are dependent upon him. So we are to view our service to him soberly. And then one last point, we're to view our service to him sovereignly. God placed you where you are in the body of Christ by his own choice. That's his choice, not mine, and not yours. In fact, everything that we are and all that we are is a choice of God. It's a choice of God. Where you were born, who your parents were, where you were saved, who you interacted with, who has instructed you, how God has brought you to this service at this time in your life, in this church, has all been a choice and work of God's sovereign pleasure. This is his body, his church, he died for it, he purchased it, it's his. It's his. Our position, our giftedness, our use in the service of Christ is not based upon our position or our prestige. It's not based upon our wealth or our wisdom. It's not based upon our physical appearance or our physical inability. It's all based upon God's sovereign choice and his purpose and plan for the church to make it the best for his own glory. If there was any other way to do it, any better way to do it, it would be done. Because God's going to do it for the most of his glory. I want to close with a passage that I would like to read to you and, and show you. If you don't mind, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> I go to this text time and time again to keep, me, keep myself in my place. 1st Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is talking about his own service to Christ and that he's a steward of the mysteries of God, which is the gospel, right? So he says this in 1st Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, when you first read that in the English text, that sounds like, well, that's pretty prestigious. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he's a servant of Christ, and he's also a minister and a servant, or, or rather a steward, of the mysteries of God. That's rather profound. But Paul's use of the word servant here is interesting. There's a number of words in the Bible that can be translated servant or slave. One is the word doulos, which is often translated correctly slave. There's another word translated service or servant, depending on whether it's a noun or a verb. It's the word diakonos. We had the word deacon out of that. There are other forms of that verb and other forms of the words for service, but this one's a unique word used by the Apostle Paul, huperetes. It basically means in its most strict form an under rower. And what that meant is the guy who pulls his oar in the bottom of the ship. In other words, he has in his mind the reference of these large ships that would go through the water. Some of them were three-tiered. They would have three layers of oars. And the guy on the bottom who pulled his oar Well, if the ship took on water, guess what? He was the first one to go. They usually were chained in place, and they were there to pull their oar. And what Paul says at the very beginning, as far as a servant to Christ, I'm not this high and lofty and exalted apostle with the capital letter A. He says, no, I'm an under rower. I'm pulling my oar for the kingdom of God. So he says in verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. In other words, just keep pulling your oar, Paul. That's what you're expected to do. Keep doing what God called you to do and do it faithfully. Verse 3, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, or a human court. There are others who are judging his motives and his means of ministry. In fact, he says, I don't even judge myself. for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord, therefore judge nothing before its time until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. In other words, look, what you think about my ministry and what I'm doing for the Lord really doesn't matter much because I know that I have to be judged by God. He's the one who will bring my motives to the front. Now look at verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Now listen to verse seven, for who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You know why you're here today? because you received it you know why you're saved because you received it you know why you're a member of the body of christ because you received it you know why you are who you are today because you received it we have nothing to be prideful and arrogant about we have everything to be humble about amen and that begins that really begins our position and our service to the body of christ as we'll talk about more next lord's day let's close in prayer Our Father, we thank you for our time together. What a blessing it's been to be together around your word, to be reminded of these very basic but very important foundational truths. Lord, we are often dealing with our own self-exaltation and self-centeredness. And Lord, I pray that you would produce in us genuine biblical humility, God-like humility, Lord God, that even Christ showed us as he came to this earth in human form, taking on the form of a slave, even to the point of being obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Lord, help us to have that same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. I pray, God, that you would produce in us a great sense of your grace and mercy in our lives and thereby produce genuine humility. In Jesus' name, amen.